Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm your host Josh Downs. This is Come Follow Me for Teens. And today's episode is episode 62. We're going to be taking a look at 2 Nephi chapters 20 through 25 under the theme, We Rejoice in Christ. We are almost through the Isaiah chapters, so we can we have a lot to look forward to. And it's not that these chapters aren't good. It's, they are just difficult uh, to get through. I, I remember just here recently finishing them just in my personal study. And there got to be several points where it felt like I was going through them in my mind, but I really had no idea what I was reading. And uh, if you're getting to that point, just know that we're almost through it and we're going to get to some uh, amazing parts that are certainly a little bit easier to read. It's almost like the Lord, of course, knew how hard the Isaiah chapters are going to be to get through, but yet how pertinent and relevant they are and would be for each and every one of us living in the latter days. But yet he wanted to make sure to reward us for the effort that it took to get through them um, and knowing that it would take time to really come to understand them fully. And uh, so he gives us the the very end of the book of Second Nephi chapters, gosh, about 25 through through the end, are just some of the, the best writings of all of Nephi's writings. And so we have that to look forward to. The background for this week's study is this, though, concerning the writings of Isaiah. The writings of Isaiah include strong warnings, but they also offer hope and joy. And this is one reason Nephi included them in his record. I write some of the words of Isaiah, he said, that whoso shall see these words may lift up their hearts and rejoice. In a sense, the invitation to read Isaiah's writing is an invitation to rejoice. You can take delight, as Nephi did, in Isaiah's prophecies about the gathering of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, and the peace promised to the righteous. You can rejoice to live in the prophesied day when the Lord has set up an ensign for all nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. When you thirst after righteousness, you can, with joy, draw water out of the wells of salvation. In other words, you can rejoice in Christ. As always, another great introduction. Now, the first principle that I'd like to focus on and and just have you take a look at today is going to be found in chapter 21, verse 9. Basically, the background of this chapter is just, it's simply that Isaiah is prophesying and describing the millennium and what it will be like and what will help us to get there. And, And this is almost an instant readiness activity that you can have if you're teaching this particular portion of the material this week, because the millennium is something that everyone is looking forward to, that everyone wants to discuss, especially the aspect of how everything in nature will no longer be at odds with each other, that that there will be complete peace and safety, even among the animal kingdom, which I think is amazing and something that I can't wait for. And I know your students will love to talk about all the different animals that they would love to have as pets or just be around knowing that they are completely safe in being around them. Personally, for me, I can't wait to swim with sharks um, without any fear of, of them whatsoever or to go through somewhere like Yellowstone Park and to find a grizzly bear and just go up and, and walk up to it and give it a big hug and know that I'm going to be okay. I mean, those, <laughs> those kinds of things. 
I can't wait to experience that, to go to a zoo without any cages. Imagine how amazing that will be. Well, in these verses that we're going to take a look at, Isaiah kind of talks about how that's going to be the state that will exist during the millennium. The verses are chapter 21, verses 6 through 9, that reads, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion and fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. What a beautiful image that is. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the principle that we want to focus on in those verses is how there comes to be so much peace and how there is no hurt or destruction in all of the Lord's holy mountain. And so a couple of questions to kind of consider that to kind of pull that principle out from those verses is, Really, as you look at that, is one of the what is one of the defining characteristics of the millennium? Is it not just peace in everything? Can you imagine a world where nothing and no one hurts another living thing? Even the animals will be getting along perfectly. That's amazing. And it's fun to, to think for yourself, which animal would you be most excited to spend time with, knowing that you're completely safe with it? Well, in those verses, Isaiah gives us a clue as to why this amazing condition exists during the millennium. It's not just something that's going to just magically happen, like a, a switch is going to just flip and then all of a sudden everything's going to get along. There is something that he is alluding to that will bring it about, that will bring about this amazing peace and cause everything to get along during the millennium. And if we can discover what that is, there's a great message for us today because we don't have to wait until the millennium to begin to experience that kind of peace. Maybe with the animal kingdom we do, but not with each other. If we want peace here and now in our world, in our country, in our communities, in our homes, and among our, our children and friends, where is it that we start? Well, if anything you should mark in those verses, it would be, they shall not hurt nor destroy, and this is in verse 9, in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the principle is the more that we come to know the Lord, the less we will be inclined to hurt, to tear down, or to destroy others. And the more inclined we'll be to build, to lift, to support, and encourage, and to love. It doesn't take strength to hurt another person. That is almost human nature. It comes naturally. It takes strength to refrain from hurting another person. It's easy to respond with hate, and we see that so prevalent in the world today. It is hard to respond with love. It's kind of a metaphor. Have you noticed that we will put a weight down on the ground through weakness? We can't hold it anymore. It's, it's so much easier to put it down. Yet we lift through strength. And the same applies to people in our lives and our interactions with them. It is easy. It is natural to put them down. It takes strength to lift them up. The defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ is love for others. Therefore, again, the more we come to know 
and love the Lord, the less we'll be found hurting others through words or actions. That's the defining characteristic of the millennium and why there will be so much peace in it. The, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I have seen this and experienced this firsthand for myself in just about every relationship I've ever had, but primarily none more so than on my mission. I served with a handful of different companions for a period of between two to, to four months at the longest. And although it was a relatively short period of time, those individuals became some of the very best friends and closest relationships I've ever had. And as I tried to look and understand as to why those relationships became so close, they became just as close and personal to me as some of the, the lifelong friends that I've had. And the differentiating factor and why they could happen so quickly was because Christ was at the heart and the center of that relationship. He was our main focus in everything that we are doing as missionaries. And as a side effect, almost, it brought us closer together. That's one of the places that I've learned how having the, the Savior as the central focus in your life improves everything and brings greater peace and love, especially to those that you are around and those relationships that you have. Now, there's another place that I saw this recently on display for the entire world, and it was during the Super Bowl. In case you didn't see it or didn't hear about it, one of the star players for the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey, and I don't know how you can not know about him with him dating Taylor Swift the way that he is, but there was a moment where there was a mistake made on the field, and Travis thought it was really the coach's fault for not getting him the ball or, or having the play run through him. And so as he was on the sideline, and it, the, the cameras picked it up later and then showed it, and it's been talked about quite a bit. But at this point in the game, Travis, in his frustration and anger, went up and actually just body-checked his coach, Randy Reed, just, just bumped him with the chest, almost knocked him over. And then he proceeded to get in his coach's face and scream at him at the top of his lungs for not doing this or not doing that. Don't know exactly everything that was said other than it was there were some not choice words used and the level of intensity was unlike anything that I've ever seen with anyone getting in somebody's face. And I'm not here to debate or to judge Travis on whether he should have done that or not. I, I have my personal opinion on that. But what I wanted to bring attention to wasn't the way that Travis responded, but the way his coach did. Randy Reed, Coach Reed, is a member of the church, and he has had a lifetime of studying and learning about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, where a lot of people may have seen weakness, I saw some of the most incredible strength and restraint that I have ever seen in another person. Any other coach in the NFL would have pulled Travis and put him on the bench probably for the rest of the game. Would have talked about it. There would have been a, a huge blow up, a, a lot of odds, arguing, anger, all that kind of stuff. But his coach, Randy Reed, just stood silently by and allowed him to throw his little fit and then proceeded to focus and coach on the game, which is probably one of the reasons why he is such a successful coach and why they one of the reasons why they won the Super Bowl this year. And I'm including this picture in the study and teaching guide for you to, to show your classes, show your students, show your family, and discuss this principle with. President Russell M. Nielsen said this, that one of the easiest ways to identify a true follower of Jesus Christ 
is by how compassionately that person treats others. And in his book, The Heart of the Matter, he also says this about our interactions with each other. He said, any abuse or prejudice towards another because of nationality, race, sexual orientation, gender, educational degrees, culture, or any other significant identifier, such as maybe even coach or player, is offensive to our maker. And such mistreatment causes us to live beneath our stature as his covenant sons and daughters. He said, I'm asking us to interact with others in a higher, holier way. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy that we can say about another person, whether to his face or behind her back, that should be our standard of communication. If a couple you know gets divorced or a young missionary returns home early or a friend doubts her testimony or a young man says he is gay, none need your judgment. They need to experience the pure love of Jesus Christ reflected in your words and actions. If a family member rants about their political feelings at your next family gathering, getting on a soapbox will not help anyone. If a friend on social media has strong views that violate everything you believe, an angry cutting retort will not help. To be sure, building bridges of understanding will require much more of you. But that is exactly what your colleague needs. That that is what a peacemaker would do. Contention drives the spirit away every time. That's the principle here that Isaiah is teaching us about why the millennium will be the millennium in the way that it will be. Some questions for you to consider, to journal, or to discuss might be, how have you felt your knowledge and relationship with Christ directly impact your relationship with others? Can you think of a time that you were able to refrain from hurting or destroying someone's character or feelings because of your knowledge of Christ and His gospel? But also, why is it important for us to be patient with ourselves as we try to grow and develop this part of our character? Again, it's not in our nature to be this way. We are talking about changing in many ways our nature. Who do you know in your life that has been a good example of being a peacemaker during contentious times especially? And do you see a correlation between their faith and knowledge of Christ and the way they treat others? And do we have to wait for the millennium to start experiencing this kind of peace in our families and communities? What can we do to better move in that direction now? And I think this next question is a good reflective question. Do you feel like being contentious after doing things like going to church, uh, learning about Christ, sharing your testimony of Christ, reading scriptures about Christ, or or learning about and feeling close to Christ in the temple, praying to Him, or or listening to Christ-centered music? And if not, do you see the lesson in this, the correlation between the way that we treat others and our relationship and knowledge of Christ? Some application questions that you might want to consider might be, what will you do today to increase your knowledge of the Lord and the time that you spend with Him? And who is there currently in your life that He can help you get along with better? And what is something that you will do to bring peace to this relationship today? Principle number two, I want to take a look at 2 Nephi in chapter 25 verses 10 through 12. And I want to focus on the phrase that we are saved by grace after all we can do. In chapter 25, Nephi gives his commentary about the words of Isaiah. This is where it starts to get really good and deep again. He has included in his words points about how Isaiah's words plainly teach and testify of Christ. 
And he mentions that he delights in plainness and then proceeds to speak very plainly, as plainly as he can, about his testimony of Christ and what he's learned about the Savior's life and mission, sharing multiple Christ-centered truths with us and his people. In describing Isaiah's prophecy of the Savior's life and ministry, he mentions a few things that I want to highlight. And again, in, in verses 10 through 12, he points out that after Lehi and his family have left Jerusalem, that Nephi has had it revealed to him that Jerusalem has in fact been destroyed and that the Jews have been carried away into Babylon. Yet he prophesies that the day will come when the Jews will return and rebuild Jerusalem and the Savior will actually manifest himself unto them. And in verse 12, I want you to look for what is the reason that they will reject him. And then mark this. Behold, they will reject him because of their iniquities. In other words, unrepented sin causes us to move further and further away from Christ until hearts are hardened, necks are stiffened, and we reject him in his gospel. Which then leads Nephi to remind his people in verse 20 of the healing and the miracles that can come to us through Christ when we repent and turn to him. Because as he testifies, there is none other name under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. I don't know how you can get any plainer than that. And because of this, then Nephi points out this great truth in verse 25 as to why he does what he does and they do what they do. In this great verse, verse 23, he says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. I want you to mark that last phrase especially. Again, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And I think it's important to clarify. We need to clarify that statement because when it is taken incorrectly, or understood incorrectly, it can be incredibly damaging to us. But understood can in turn give us incredible hope. Because a common distortion of the doctrine of grace, and sometimes as a result of this verse, is the view that the Savior extends His grace and mercy to us only after we've done all that we can possibly do. And if that's the way that we take Nephi's statement here, well, just follow this through then with me. If it would follow then that since no one ever really does all they possibly theoretically could have done, then no one can ever really be worthy of grace either. This can cause us to easily think and begin to believe that grace and mercy are given only to those who are worthy of it and only after they have proven they are worthy. And therefore, only those who keep all the commandments of God all the time are really worthy. Which then makes, what's the point of receiving grace and mercy if if we don't need it because we are keeping all the commandments perfectly all the time? This causes us to think that, well, I can't possibly keep all the commandments all the time. Therefore, I'm not ever really worthy and can never expect to receive grace and mercy in my life, let alone can expect to be saved. You see the, the damage that that kind of thinking can do? I want you to think of this statement more along the lines of, concurrence instead of sequence. Young people, please understand that God's grace isn't received after doing something that we never really can fully do, but rather we can receive of God's grace as we strive to do all that we can do, given the state of our mortal condition, which is having weaknesses and sin in our lives. 
to kind of illustrate, there's there's a great story. It's it's kind of an LDS classic given by St- uh, Stephen E. Robinson called The Parable of the Bicycle, which has really helped me to understand the relationship between grace and works, what I need to do to access Christ's grace, and, and how available it is to me. As the story is told, a seven-year-old girl asks her father if she can have a bicycle, saying that she's the only kid on the block without one. The father tells her that if she saves all of her pennies, she will soon have enough to buy a bicycle. He then shares that his daughter did start to save every single one of her pennies in order to buy a bike. He would hear the pennies clinking into the jar as she earned them from helping her mother. And when Robinson realized his daughter was following his instructions, he took her downtown to look at bikes. At the store, she found the perfect one, the perfect bicycle. But upon seeing the price tag, she started to cry, as probably most of us would, saying, Oh, Dad, I'll never have enough for a bicycle. Her dad asked her how much she had, to which she replied, 61 cents. To which he said, Well, I'll tell you what. You give me everything you've got, the whole 61 cents, and a hug and a kiss, and the bike is yours. She once again followed his instructions, and she was able to get the bike. He said that he had to drive home very slowly because she wanted to ride the bike home, so he followed her in the car. Then it occurred to him that what had just happened was a parable for the atonement of Christ. We all want something something desperately, he said. It isn't a bicycle. We want the celestial kingdom. We want to be with our Father in heaven. And no matter how hard we try, we come up short. And it's at this point that the sweetness of the gospel covenant comes to our taste. As the Savior proposes, I'll tell you what. All right, you're not perfect. How much do you have? Give me all that there is and I'll pay the rest. Enter into a personal relationship with me, and I will do what remains undone. I love that story I always have. And, and, you know, this applies not just to the celestial kingdom, but to potentially any blessing that we desire in this life or the next. We always have access to Christ's grace when we agree to give him whatever it is that we have at the time. You see the difference there in the way that we could potentially look at this great truth? Now, I've included in this study and teaching guide some of the the best quotes from one of the best talks that really helped to clarify this further from Elder Chad Wilcox, titled, Worthiness is Not Flawlessness. And if you have not read this talk, please do yourself a favor. And all those that you'll be teaching, young people, you especially, read this talk and read it often. In it, he says things like, Some mistakenly receive the message that they're not worthy to participate fully in the gospel because they're not completely free of bad habits. God's message is that worthiness is not flawlessness. Worthiness is being honest and trying. We must be honest with God, priests, the leaders, and others who love us, and we must strive to keep God's commandments and never give up just because we slip up. Elder Brucey Hafen said that developing a Christ-like character requires patience and persistence more than it requires flawlessness. The Lord said His gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all commandments, and him that seeketh so to do. I'm so grateful for that little modifier, and him that seeketh so to do, that wants to, that is trying to. He shares a a great example of what that is like in, in personal life with a young man that's been struggling with pornography that I would invite you to look up. But then he concludes some of his remarks with with this, that Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf has said, God does not need people who are flawless. He seeks those who will offer their heart and a willing mind, and he will make them perfect in Christ. His grace is not just a prize for the worthy. 
It is the divine assistance he gives that helps us to become worthy. It is not just a reward for the righteous. It is the endowment of strength he gives that helps us to become righteous. That we are not just walking toward God and Christ. We are walking with them. And I just love, love, love that thought. And there are some other great quotes I've included in the study and teaching guide there that uh, will supplement this particular principle. Some questions that you might consider journaling on or discussing for yourself is, number one, how have you experienced Satan's lies of not being good enough or worthy enough for God to help you, let alone love you? Can you think of a time that you have struggled feeling that you could ever be worthy enough? Can you understand that the Savior's grace and enabling power isn't available after being worthy, but is available to help you become worthy and to change your perspective on what it is that you can really do? And how does this understanding lead to hope instead of discouragement? Why would Satan want you to believe that being worthy means being perfect or that you can only receive God's help after all you can do? How can a person better focus on where they have come from instead of how far they have to go? And what has changed for you in understanding that achieving worthiness is about trying instead of being? That worthiness is not flawlessness. How do you see this scripture now and the phrase, we are saved by grace after all we can do differently? Some application questions to consider is, one, what will you do better to move towards worthiness with your flaws? And how can you be more open and honest and vulnerable in seeking God's help from both him, his priesthood leaders, and your parents as you deal with your flaws and weaknesses? Now, for the final principle today, we're going to focus on one verse. And uh, again, it goes along with everything that we've been talking about. These are some very Christ-centered verses which, and principles, which is what Isaiah's writings really are all about. This principle comes from chapter 25, verse 26, and it's one that I'm sure you're familiar with. But in this verse, Nephi describes why he and his people focus so much on Christ. It isn't because they're trying to be perfect as much as it is because they need mercy. I remember coming across a statement once that just simply says, what we focus on expands. And I found that to be so true in my own life. In this verse, we are going to see one of the reasons why it's so important that we focus on Christ and how that can expand in our life. In chapter 25, verse 26, Nephi writes, And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies. Why? That our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. In other words, he is saying and expressing his belief that if we focus more on Christ, that he will expand in our lives in a way that will help us to overcome our sinful nature and receive a remission of our sins. Remember, young people, we came here being expected to make mistakes, to struggle with weaknesses, and to fall short. That's the whole reason for Christ and therefore the good news of the gospel. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to keep trying to be better and to develop a desire to improve. Remember, as Master Shifu taught Po in Kung Fu Panda 3, after Po failed miserably at being a teacher and expressed his frustration at not being good enough and his belief that he just couldn't do it, Master Shifu's wise response to him when he said, Oh, I knew you couldn't do it. <laughs> to which Po said, What? You mean you set me up to fail? 
To which he responded with this wonderful little nugget that I have just come to love and adopt and use all the time in my teaching and in my personal life for that matter. He said, Poe, if you only do the things that you can do, you'll never be anything more than you are right now. You guys, God knew that you would be flawed, that you are flawed. But it's those flaws and pushing through them and those mistakes that go along with them and striving to be better that are helping you to become more than you were when you started this journey. And those sins, mistakes, and shortcomings can and will be all overcome through Christ, which is therefore paramount that we focus on Him as much as we can and that we do always remember Him, which we promise to do each and every week when we partake of the sacrament because we always need Him. As long as we live on a fallen world, surrounded by temptation, we always will. Yet something happens when we come into Christ and begin to follow Him. He enables us to overcome sin and weakness a little at a time until we have eventually and will eventually overcome the world. As President Nelson taught and said, those who keep their covenants with God will become a strain of sin-resistant souls who have the desire and strength to overcome the world. Personally, I believe that God is so happy with wherever you are each and every time you commit or recommit to try again, to try harder. Every time you do something to better follow Christ and invite His grace and atonement and enabling power into your life, no matter where you are or what it is that you've done. Because this isn't just a gospel of second chances. As Elder David A. Bednar said in speaking to a group of missionaries back in 2022, this is the gospel of not just second chances, but of never-ending chances because of repentance. Now, I've struggled. I'll let you into a little insight of my own life. I have struggled feeling good enough most of my life, well even into my adult years. I would imagine many of you listening have as well. I've always felt that my success in spiritual matters depended more on my own efforts than anyone else's. It's taken me a long time and a lot of failure to finally admit to myself that I can't do certain things on my own, and that's okay. As long as I keep trying, one day the atonement of Christ will fully cleanse, heal, and save me from my sins and weaknesses because I can't. It has allowed me to more fully surrender myself to Him, and instead of working to get to heaven, I'm working to get heaven more into me. It has freed me to confess when needed to without fear of judgment and shame, to not take the sacrament at times without being afraid of what people think, and to see Christ more as a personal Savior than ever before, more as my Savior. And, and you know what's amazing is that once I made that shift in my thinking, I found myself starting to improve in ways that I never have before to the point where I can come to, to say and, and feel and believe like Nephi that the more I talk of Christ, the more I rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, prophesy and write of, of Christ, the more that I will know not just how much I need Him, but how much He will help to kill the cancer of sin in my life and put it into remission. Because without Him, I have come to know and experienced that it will continue to grow and spread it till, until it has consumed me. 
some journal and discussion questions might be something along the lines of what are some of, of your favorite ways or places to hear or talk about Christ in your life? What are some of the ways or places where you have come to rejoice in Christ the most? What are some of your favorite talks or quotes or verses about Christ from modern prophets or from Scripture? How has Christ become the source of remission for your sins? How have you felt your sins and sinful nature move more into remission from being close to the Savior? How have you felt your sinful nature begin to overcome you from being disconnected from Him? What has this helped you to see about your dependence and reliance on Him to overcome both sin and weakness in your own life? Some application questions to consider might be, what will you resolve to do better to remember Him, to talk more about Him, to rejoice more in Him? I would invite you to maybe write of a time where you felt the desire for the world and sin leave you from something you experienced that was Christ-centered. Now, hopefully those verses are helpful. There's, again, always so much in there for you to, to learn and discover for yourself. I'm excited for you to have a great week of study. Please remember, as always, that the transcript and study and teaching guide, as well as the Come Follow Me membership subscription, which gives you monthly access to both, as well as early access for next week's lesson, can all be accessed from the link in the show notes, as well as on my website at joshdowns.com under Come Follow Me for Teens. And if you haven't left me a review, please do so. I'm going to ask you to continue to do that for those that haven't. It just helps so much to get those reviews out there. And if there's anybody that you know of that has young people or that just you think can benefit from the the thoughts or principles from a show like this, will you please share this episode with them today or the show in general? Excuse me. I sure appreciate all of your support, and I always will. And I will continue to do my best to make this a valuable resource for you, for your families, for your classes for anyone that you have responsibility for and guiding them to Christ, including yourself. I hope that you have an amazing week of study and applying the principles and truths from this week's material. As always, please remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. And this has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, prestige, the only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow Him better this week, and as always, become better as we follow Him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and this has been Come Follow Me for Teens and Parents of Teens.